What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I was made to build things and I build them quite well. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Polkabon. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today... We are going to be tackling a listener request. Yes, this is a listener request that's from uh, Chris, and Chris sent us an epic email. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's an, an incredible email. Fantastic! Thank you so much, Chris. Basically, uh, a sci-fi novel. It's it's long, it's long, but we're we're so we're not going to read the whole thing. But I'll give you the gist of what Chris was talking about. Chris was talking about the uh, sort of the the. Uh, combination of multiple disciplines to allow us to explore the universe ultimately with robots that would give us a telepresence in wherever those robots could go so that we could kind of experience that ourselves. So we're talking about a combination of different factors. Uh, advances in robotics where the robots, particularly humanoid robots, would be able to go around and explore things. The ability to send those signals back to us using an, a user interface that's similar to 
virtual reality or augmented reality headsets Mm -hmm. and the ability for us to control those robots in real time or as close to real time as possible so that we can experience what it's like being on these remote places, including places across the galaxy. Uh, Right, right. This is like a step above rovers and into full-on robotic avatars. Yes. So we wanted to talk about the possibility of that and some of the challenges that we face in order to get to a point where we could have robotic avatars. And in some ways, we're really close. And in other ways, for some applications, there's some problems that may, in fact, be insurmountable. Yeah, well, we may be coming up against problems that we often encounter when trying to uh, to interface between technology and our brains. Yeah, exactly. But we've talked about this on the show before, but maybe we should just do a real quick refresher on why it is you'd want to have robots in space exploration as opposed to human astronauts. Right, right. And and why you would want to have a, a robot, uh, you know, avatar in the first place. Now, there are some reasons why you would want one just here on Earth. And one of the great stories we'll be covering later is looking into research of using a robotic avatar for people who are otherwise incapable of moving. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. Yeah. It gives them the ability to have a, a robotic body do things on their behalf and they can control it in various ways. So. That's one reason, but the other one being for space exploration or other means here on Earth, robots can go places we can't. Yeah, we've got these delicate, squishy human bodies that don't breathe the vacuum of space and, you know. Yeah, cold, yeah. cold really super cold temperatures kind of mess with us. Uh, radiation is bad. Super hot temperatures mess with us. We're just not that great. Yeah, no, <laughs> Organic matter, (laughs) organic matter has limitations. And some of those are limitations that mechanical or electromechanical or synthetic materials either do not experience or experience to a lesser degree. Well, yeah, there, there are a couple ways you want to look at this. One of them is simply that it can't, like a robot can do things a human couldn't do. It can actually accomplish a mission that we would not be able to complete. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that we don't have to value robots as much. Like, it's okay to send a robot on a suicide mission. You don't have to feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Right. It it may end up being a large financial obligation, but still, that's very different than putting a human life in danger. Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, sentencing someone to never see their family again or never use Facebook again or... Right, right. Or just... Never see Gremlins 2 again. (laughs) Actually, I'm getting into an area where I wouldn't mind giving those things up but uh oh gremlins too is still amazing uh no it's it's one of those it's also one of those things where we could send them to even if it's not a one-way mission we could send them to places that would be extremely risky for humans and that that includes places here on earth obviously we use robots for that now oh sure for deep sea exploration Mm -hmm. yeah And there are also reasons a robot could complete a mission that humans couldn't complete apart from the fact that it like the environment might kill a human. Sure. It can also be that robots can have scientific precision that humans don't naturally have. Exactly. With our dumb, meaty fingers. Right. Unless we have some kind of tool or something. Yeah. Robots can move on a level of precision that that is far greater than what humans can accomplish. Uh, And we've been putting that to good use here on Earth as well. Also, robots can have an array of sensors on them that give them uh, access to a lot more information than what we humans can uh, can access with just our, our natural senses, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. their, their robots are capable of quote unquote seeing in a spectrum that's much more broad than our visible spectrum that we're limited to. Uh, yeah. Because of our dumb media eyes. Right. And yeah. they can also quote unquote hear. I mean, pretty much any sense you can think of, 
we can build sensors that are much more sensitive to that information than our natural sensors. The robot can have an onboard mass spectrometer, which, I mean, we have a tongue, but yeah, it's just better <laughs> better to use the spectrometer than to go tasting the dust mm, of Mars. This tastes radioactive. Yeah, that's not a, not necessarily a good thing. Okay, well, so obviously it's not a new idea to use robots controlled by humans in certain conditions mm-hmm. where they would be, you know, preferable or more useful or at least, you know, better to put in harm's way. Sure. Uh, for example, one thing I've seen plenty of pictures and uh, video of before is bomb disposal robots. Yeah, this, oh, yeah. This makes was, total sense. This is one of the ones that leapt to mind when I was thinking about this, sort of like the, the predecessors to the types of robots that Chris was asking about in the email we received. So bomb disposal robots have been around for a while. The earliest one I could find was designed in 1972 by Lieutenant Colonel Peter Miller. I say lieutenant because he was in the British Army. Uh, his Bomb disposal robot was built as uh, a means of a matter of necessity. At the time, the British Army was dealing with a lot of car bombs that were being left by the Irish Republican Army, mm-hmm. and so, uh, or rather, the Irish Republic Army. And so, he wanted to find a way to uh, be able to to pull cars that might have explosive devices in them to a safe zone. Uh, surrounded by sandbags, that sort of thing, so that it could be detonated without putting people in harm's way. And a lot of the times before he had made the first bomb disposal robot, uh, it was essentially the job of somebody who was very brave and padded down as much as possible, armored up, to physically go look into a car, sometimes having to open a car door, which could be a triggering device, mm-hmm. to get access to a bomb. So they were trying to find a way to make this safer. And he came up with the idea when he was thinking back on something else he had done. It turned out that uh, that Peter Miller was something of a tinkerer and someone who who often would think, how can I make this easier? Uh, and one of the things he thought about was a way to make it easier for him to mow the lawn so that he didn't have to do it personally. And what he did was he, he, he did something really simple. He had a lawnmower that had powered wheels so it could move on its own once you apply you know gas to it, mm-hmm. essentially. He tied a rope to it put a stake in the ground that the rope was attached to and let it go. So it would go in a circle <laughs> and every time it completed a circle it was it was winding the rope around the 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 stake yeah, that was tall so enough in it. it. There would be a shorter length of rope on yep. the next go around. So That's... it was a concentric circle. So yep. it's like an early mowing Roomba. It's yeah. brilliant in theory for some reason that Seems like it wouldn't actually work in practice. But. It, it worked for him enough for him to think, maybe I can come up with something similar, but use it for this this very dangerous activity. And he thought, well, the, the lawnmower wouldn't really work as well. And he saw someone using a motorized wheelbarrow. And he literally went to the garden center, <laughs> bought a motorized wheelbarrow, brought it back to headquarters. They were given carte blanche to do whatever they needed in order to actually put this thing together. So they disassembled the wheelbarrow. So they just had the chassis and they created a, a robot that had a tow hook on it. It was essentially a grappling hook and they could power it remotely. And by remotely, I mean they tied ropes to the controls. <laughs> by, by power, you mean human power. Human yes. power, yeah. There was a human standing several feet back using ropes to uh, guide and power the wheelbarrow as it would move to a car. And in fact, they had to test this out almost immediately. They had to go to Belfast with it. 
They used it to hook a car and it started to tow the car back. However, uh, and it was actually, con- uh, there was another vehicle, I believe, that was connected to it to help it pull back because the wheelbarrow wasn't strong enough to tow a car, I don't mm-hmm. believe. However, what happened was the wheelbarrow unfortunately fell over during that first uh, real life. It wasn't even a test. This was a real life use of it. This was before they had really had a chance to test this thing. It fell, fell over on its side and they ended up detonating the car by rockets uh, where it what, where it ended up oh. after it had been towed just a short distance. But they still considered it a success because it didn't it didn't require someone to get into harm's way to pull the car sure. further away. from It was actually at a car dealership is where the car was. Oh, found. my goodness. Mm-hmm. So uh, they considered it a success. And in fact, uh, Peter Miller would go on to oversee the development of more sophisticated robots, ones that had a true remote control ability, not just with ropes mm-hmm. and ones that had more like an articulated arm. So it could do things like pick up a suspicious package and move it physically to a different location. Uh, You know, it it ended up being sort of the genesis of bomb disposal robots. And so we've got a lot more uh, advanced ones now, including ones that have cameras so you can operate remotely and see what, quote unquote, see what the robot sees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course, there's lots of other military use robots a lot sure. of them are used for uh for for simple reconnaissance missions yeah in fact the company that makes roombas has military reconnaissance robots that right. are pretty awesome yep. um but uh that gets us into our next bullet here which is reconnaissance drones mm-hmm. yeah so drones obviously being used for reconnaissance around the world right now uh the earliest drones were Really kind of electronic drones that were – or the earliest electronic drones, I should say, because you could count like unmanned balloons from the 19th century in and that field that if you wanted really to. really tragic time that they strapped bombs to bats and – Yeah, yeah. That could be considered part of it too. But in this case, we're talking about electronic drones that were just used as target practice uh, for uh, combat pilots and anti-aircraft gunners. And then eventually, in the 1960s, the U.S. Air Force funded development of unmanned reconnaissance drones like the Ryan Model 147, also known as the Lightning Bug, which had to be launched from a Lockheed DC-130 Hercules airplane. Uh, they had cameras aboard the drones, but they were just taking series of photographs and had to be retrieved so that you could oh, see yeah. what they had gotten. The 1960s, yeah. they didn't have a satellite uplink to right. automatically. Yeah, you weren't getting a live feed right. from the drone, so you actually had to you had to find the drone after it had landed and retrieve it, so that you could get the information that was captured. But this meant that you had an unmanned vehicle as opposed to someone flying like a U-2 spy plane, which you know had previously been shot down by the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, so that was a big issue. Uh, in 1972, the Ryan Model 147 SCTV was introduced which had a TV camera that sent a live feed to the DC-130 drone controller aircraft. No telling if the SCTV also had Canadian humor on it. Oh. Yeah. How many of you are familiar with that sketch show? (laughs) (laughs) That's a dated reference right there. At any rate, today we've got lots of different drones with cameras on them that can give you a live feed, including consumer drones, the type of stuff like the Parrot AR drone where you can control it with a smartphone Get a live feed of the camera to your smartphone. You can play games with other people who own them and, 
You do a little like kind of tag like games using your smartphone as the user interface. So these are commonplace now. Yeah, and, yeah, they've it's it's come a long way, baby. Yeah, and so again, this is a way of our, us extending our presence beyond our immediate surroundings, right? Mm-hmm. Although still fairly, uh, I mean, with the use of the consumer drones, it's still fairly uh, uh, modest. You know, something that is a lot like a direct robotic avatar would be something like robotic surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Because that involves directly translating a human's movements into the movements of robotic arms and tools. Mm-hmm. That's uh, sort of like just giving you this tiny direct presence inside somebody else's body, which is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> but also cool. Yeah. Sure. And like all robotics, this can work in a few different ways. Uh, most of the robotic surgery things that exist today are shared control systems. And, and that just means that, that a doctor is, yes, is directly using robotic equipment to perform a surgery the 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 robot in question here isn't really thinking and it can't really react to to anything that happens the robot doesn't decide where to cut right exactly um now telesurgery and doctor supervised robotic surgery systems are are in development but you know telesurgery requires really good really stable internet connections right no one wants something to go terribly wrong in someone's body because the internet went down yeah, you right. can't you clearly can't have any latency issues either because mm-hmm. you need to for example a lot of these systems have warning uh warning algorithms in place so that if you start uh, straying too close to a very sensitive area let's say that you are performing a surgery to remove uh, a cancerous tumor for example sure. and you're starting you would start to get to a point where you're going to be cutting into healthy tissue a lot of these have a system involved where you get a feedback to the surgeon so the surgeon knows even though they're not in the same space as the patient, mm-hmm. that they can't go any further without harm, potentially harming the patient. Uh, right, right. And there's a, a large process of scanning and uh, a, a data collection that happens before any of these surgeries would start so that uh, frequently they'll kind of mark off areas around the edges where you're supposed to cut so that, right, right so that you get that feedback. Yeah, you get, you get the margin, I think is what they call it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes they will even have stops in place to, Tell the robot, like, no, you do not move past this point. Right. Please and thank you. Which makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And then uh, doctor supervised robotic surgery requires just so much of that scanning and programming beforehand. And, And, you know, like we've just been saying, these machines are not or the computer programs really aren't complex enough to stop or change plans if something goes wrong. So there's just an element of, of oh, involved. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of the questions about robot surgery are also involved uh, sort of in the idea we discussed not too long ago about what happens if a robot breaks the law. The underlying question is who's responsible for the autonomous actions of a robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people probably just aren't yet comfortable with the idea of giving a robot full free reign, even sure. when it might do as well as a human in mm-hmm. practice. Uh, yeah, even scarier than a pushing robot is a robot that's already performing laparoscopic surgery on your heart. Right. Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. But, but the concept is definitely awesome. You know, mm. using tiny endoscopic cameras, a, a robot can show a surgical team in 2D or even 3D what's going on inside of a patient and and robots can make such small controlled movements um so consistently you know without fatigue yeah no uh, no handshaking right right you know some surgeries take hours like half a day even and and robots don't get tired and don't get shaky hands when they miss their 3 p.m. snack time right right exactly and in that way 
this really is a lot more like the idea of a robotic avatar than some of the other things we might consider. Yeah. Uh, because the, the tools are becoming extensions of the doctor's hands. Right. Anyway. And, and they are enhancing the doctor's already formidable, uh, uh, experience and abilities to the point where the doctor is capable of carrying out moves that may not have been possible under his or her own normal, you know, human motions. Yeah. So it, uh, also, uh, one thing that this another huge benefit this gives us is uh, minimally invasive surgery where you don't have to do the the you know, you may not have to make a big incision in order to uh, perform some of these surgical procedures because you're able to make these very precise movements with tools that can go into a, a relatively small uh, uh, cut. And that also means that you have a faster healing time and less chance for infection. So yeah. there are other benefits as well. Right. And so the question of have we ever used anything like a robotic avatar in space exploration is a little different, though, than the yeah. kind of examples we've talked about before. So if you are controlling a bomb disposal robot or a robotic surgery tool like mm-hmm. the Da Vinci robot or even a drone that's you know pretty far away, it's still close enough that you can have direct interaction and control. Yeah. Um, it might not be so like fully immersive, like you're becoming the robot, but there's some kind of analogy between that and having a robotic avatar. Space exploration is a little different for a few reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of those is that if we look at the the history of using robots in space, you could argue that things like probes kind of sort of fit the bill in the sense that they have sensors on them that extend our ability to look or whatever into space, you mm. know, depending upon the sensors. Uh, they typically have an antenna that will allow them to transmit information back to Earth and occasionally receive messages saying, hey, you need to do a, a small course correction. That That's about the extent of the interaction between mm. probe and Earth. It's mostly a, a data gathering system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of autonomy and disconnectedness. Yeah. Uh, rovers, however, those are uh, much more recent. Uh, they date really back to the 1970s when the uh, Lunokhod rover launched by the then Soviet Union to the moon. Uh, that was a remote-controlled rover equipped with a camera that sent back images of the moon. The first unmanned rover to land successfully on Mars was the Sojourner in 1997. Uh, that was carried aboard the Mars Pathfinder spacecraft. And we've since used a few other rovers to explore Mars uh, and also we've used it to look at other, you know, rovers to look at other bodies as well. However, the further out we get, the more we're no longer talking about real time. And that's the big uh, change between the ones we were talking about earlier, the ones where we're on the same planet as the robot. So the lag time and communication tends to be either undetectable or so short that we can we can adapt to it. Uh, sure, sure. A few seconds is adaptable. If you're talking about the 14 minute lag time yeah. to get a message back and forth to Mars, or is, is it? It can be even longer than that. It's 14 minutes. It, it was 14 minutes when uh, when the Curiosity rover landed to get a message one way. But that was just because of the positions of Earth and Mars. It can actually be much longer because Mars can be and Earth can be on opposite ends of uh, from the sun. Mm-hmm. So, and to bounce a message back to it is, is obviously twice the, yeah. the going rate. So yeah, uh, t- t- 28 minutes between, um, your, your robot and yourself is a really long time. You're, yeah. you're like, all right, I'm driving towards this cliff. 
<laughs> right. Oh, crap. Like, oh, I fell off that cliff half an hour ago yeah. and I wasn't aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's it's actually a real issue. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the latency and lag in just a second. But before we do that, let's talk about a, another thing that's really cool. We have a story about something that is much closer to having a robotic avatar than any of these. I mean, it's, it's actual purpose is to have that sense of, uh, of, of ability to move around in an environment on behalf of someone. Right. Well, a, a true robotic avatar, kind of like you've seen, I don't know, in the movie Avatar or something. <laughs> what? Do you know, is that the one with M. Night Shyamalan, the, little kid who can control <laughs> you can stop talking air uh, so <laughs> in any of these movies where you have somebody who assumes sort of a robot body like they plug their brain into something uh, right, right, and right. now they're controlling a robot that's sort of the idea of you know you have a robot avatar it acts on your behalf you sort of become the robot mentally mm-hmm. uh, nothing like that exists today Shucks. But people are working on things like that. Uh, for example, robots that are sort of on one hand uh, giving you feedback through at least visual kind of screen information. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it could be some kind of virtual reality or augmented reality uh, feedback. But then you can also control them with your mind. Yeah. So this is referencing a really cool report that we saw in io9. Uh, researchers at the CNRS AIST Joint Robotics Laboratory and the CNRS LIRMM Interactive Digital Human Group. They need to work on some of those easily pronounceable acronyms. Bob Lerm. Lerm. It's a great acronym. What are you talking it's about? Iced and Lerm, <laughs> uh, which sound like the aliens from Futurama almost. Lerm. So, uh, they, 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 these two groups have collaborated on a project that could allow for thought controlled robotics. And there have been lots of experiments in recent years about thought controlled robotics. Yeah, exactly. Uh, some of which require invasive surgery in order to implant electrodes, some of which use more uh, uh, more of a contact thing like an EEG cap. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. So typically what we see today is that you can do a lot more with surgical implants. Yeah. But the goal that people are working on is to try to be able to have significant thought control of uh, for a brain-computer interface with non-invasive methods like an EEG cap on your head so you don't have to get surgery if you want to control a robot. Uh, right. right. It's a lot easier sell to say, like, hey, you might want to shave a little patch on your head than it is to say, like, hey, can we drill a hole in your skull? We'll fix it. We promise. Yeah. Yeah. It is definitely uh, a big leap there, right? So this uh, this particular one they're calling robotic re-embodiment. Hmm. And, uh, again, the person who is controlling the robot wears an EEG cap to send commands to the robot. So there's a training process, obviously, where mm-hmm. you have to uh, both, you know, train the robot how to respond to, th- to certain uh, stimuli that are created by the thoughts, you know, that, that are converted into electrical signals. Uh, then you also have to train the person who's wearing the cap so that they are, in fact, concentrating on whatever it, whatever task they want the robot to do. Now, this particular approach is intended for people who have suffered paralysis. So, again, the idea of giving them some uh, more control over their lives by having this uh, robot be able to do things on their behalf by them actually c- controlling it with their thoughts. And uh, there's even an AI component to it, which makes sense, because otherwise – 
the person wearing the cap would have to do everything to control the robot. And we haven't reached that point where we can feel like our brains are actually inside this robotic body. The robotic body is really just an extension of our own abilities. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it, it's usually very simple commands. Yeah, our EEG reading is not that good. Yeah, so for something like walk down the hall, you might, you know, you're looking at a screen that's showing you what the robot, quote unquote, can see based upon cameras that are in the robot. Uh, and the picture that they had was of a humanoid robot. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. You could look at, say, a point down the hall and the AI would take over and walk the robot for you down the hallway. So you didn't have to think, all right, now I have to lift the left leg of the robot and huh. set it down. Now right, to, right. It would do all of that automatically, which makes sense. So it's a, um, it's marrying remote control with AI, some, some autonomous behavior so that it can complete certain tasks. But then other things you could, you know, think I want to pick up that glass and the robot would presumably, if it's everything's working properly, reach out an arm, pick up the thing you wanted and bring it to you. Yeah. Another thing in that realm that's obviously much simpler is telepresence robots. Yeah. I mean, these are almost when you when you see how some of them are implemented, it's kind of like, oh, that counts as a robot. Yeah. <laughs> but it does. I mean, imagine like, for example, a an iPad. Yeah. Doing FaceTime on top of a scooter yeah. that scoots around. Like a little Segway. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's a telepresence robot. And yeah. I've seen those. I mean, you know, some of them look look like it look you know, it looks like it's a, a handle that's connected to two wheels. So it doesn't even look like it's a Segway type thing even. Uh but the handle has a, a frame into which you can put a tablet like an iPad. You run uh the software which allows for two way communication. So uh, the person who wants to control the robot would use their own mobile device or computer or whatever, uh, which would have a camera trained on them. Uh, so their face would show up in that iPad. You would have a little framed picture of whomever is using it. Like I, I use the example of your boss, just as general, your boss who goes and travels a lot, uses this to check up on employees. And could control the movements of the robot remotely. So you'd have your own little on, – on your device, if you're the boss, you would have some sort of controls to guide where the robot could go. And you would have a view from the camera, the forward-facing camera on whatever tablet or whatever device you have plugged into that. And then you could roll up and interrupt people at work and – Ask them what they're doing and make sure that they're being, you know, productive and not getting on Facebook for the 40th time in a row or whatever. Uh, or, you know, you could go up to the water cooler and participate in a conversation. Yeah. Now, granted, N- you not participate in the water. That would be that a would terrible be wrong. idea. Yeah, that would yeah, be that would but, be uh, 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 a bad choice for a robot. Really. I can't wait till somebody comes up with the great hacks for these things where they can make it seem like you're working through your telepresence robot because it plays video of you like saying, hi, how are you doing as it rolls around the <laughs> office? But really, you're out bowling. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you can you can uh, really defy the expectations of your robo boss by simply walking into a room that has a door and closing it behind you because this is a robot that's literally on wheels and nothing else. So it has I'm, no hands. Yeah, oh, you would no, have no. to. I, I read about these. Actually, they can knock on a door just by ramming into the door <laughs> yeah, a few right. times. That was in an article I read. Yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. the, the other explanations I have seen have suggested that perhaps uh, like really forward thinking offices, not our, not our forward thinking office, but 
in general could have uh, automatic doors right, installed right, so that to when, help fix this problem. Yeah, there's a little motion sensor and then it opens up automatically and then the your robo boss rolls on in to to chat with you. Where we're ruining all of Joe's dreams by suggesting this right now. Yeah, he he much prefers a, just the the picture of our boss ramming bonk, into a door bonk, repeatedly bonk, in order bonk. to get it to open. Uh enter. <laughs> At any rate, this telepresence approach is something that already exists. Again, it doesn't it doesn't give you uh, the the experience that Chris was talking about. Obviously, uh, well, part of that is the fact that our virtual reality or, or augmented reality systems are not up to snuff enough to to make us feel like we are that robot. Yeah, to embody a robot or to embody yourself within a robot, how would be the best way to say that? I don't know. However, to to become a robot. To become the robot. You really do need some kind of VR. Like FaceTime is not good enough. Yeah, no. yeah. I mean, that's uh, VR is one of those things. It's funny because the earliest some of the earliest implementations of virtual reality were uh, were military uh, implementations, and they were to give people a better view of what was around uh, whatever vehicle they might have been in. So right, right. Uh, pilots were using this, for example, in order to get a good view underneath the aircraft if they had to drop something off at a particular target uh, or, uh, you know, people inside an armored vehicle. Obviously, the armored vehicle is is an important element of keeping personnel safe. And if you were to, I don't know, put a lot of windows in it, it becomes it would, less safe. Right. So what you do is you end up mounting cameras on the uh, the actual armored vehicle that point out in different directions. And then you can have a head-mounted display. And by turning your head, it actually automatically signals which camera view you start to yeah, get. Yeah, and, and can access them and, uh, you know, hypothetically in 360 degrees around you. Yeah, I've seen some really cool implementations of this where it has that sort of seamless uh, overlapping technology. It's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's not that different from stitching together photographs to make right. a, a panoramic image, right? Uh, except it's doing it in video, which is <laughs> yeah, kind of crazy. Is really hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but these are are examples of again kind of marrying that idea of uh, uh, a a mechanical presence and allowing you the ability to perceive as if you were that thing because it's not it's not your view of the. Of your surroundings. Your view of the surroundings is the interior of that vehicle. It's mm-hmm. the view of the vehicle and yeah. within its surroundings. Right. So that's kind of, you know, you extend that to a robot, like a humanoid robot, and you could say, oh, I, that would totally work if I have a head mounted display with head tracking. And when I turn my head, the robot changes its perspective, whether it turns a head or just a camera Activates rotates. Or, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah, that's kind of one argument for the fact that if we were to try to create robotic avatars, they should probably be basically humanoid robots. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to, you know, inhabit the headspace of something that's not at least sort of shaped like a human. The the further away you get from the human shape, the more effort it's going to take on the part of the human controlling it to uh, to do so in a way that feels natural. Now, it's not. And that's, I don't think that's an insurmountable challenge. And we'll get into that a little yeah, bit. But I, I think it's probably easier in the long run to get human pilots used to controlling a, a roving, a, a rolling robot than it is to create a bipedal. Yeah. 
Yeah, build, building a Maybe. robot that's humanoid that is capable of of, of doing love. things like yeah. I was thinking of picking <laughs> itself up when it fell over. Really, <laughs> uh, that's a big challenge. Well, those Boston Dynamics uh, people are. Yeah, the, those robots they're, they're are on it. Moving uh, creepily fair, though, forward. Those robots are four legged. Creepily forward. No, 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 they're working on two legged robots. Oh, that's too. true. They've there got, is the one that was running on the, tri- ones the, the uh, treadmill. Oof. Well, at any rate, let's those talk about some go. of those challenges. Yeah. Well, one of the big ones, obviously, if we're so so, what did Chris ask about? He, we were talking about robotic avatars, specifically mentioned yeah. for space exploration, right? Right, and Chris had said uh, perhaps we would be able to use something like quantum communication to get around the lag and latency issues we have. So, for example, the Curiosity rover, when it when we were landing that, we, as in when the team was landing that, I had nothing to do with it. I was covering it, which was cool, but I had no direct involvement. When the team was landing the or or observing the Curiosity rover's landing, we were doing that knowing that the events we're watching had already happened, right? That it had taken that 14 mm-hmm. minutes for information to get back to us. And technically, we're looking at what happened 14 minutes ago. So there was a time where the robot was either safe on the surface of Mars or had crashed and was, uh, uh, you know, completely lost to us. And we had no way of knowing. We just had to wait for that time to catch up so that we would find out what had happened, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You're like, oh, this is an event that, had occurred one way or another, but we had to wait until we until the information could get to us yeah. before we learned of it. <laughs> Very briefly, it was Schrodinger's rover. Yeah, it's true. It kind of really was Schrodinger's <laughs> rover. So that that's a great way of saying what about quantum communication? Now, I, I'm not entirely certain what Chris was trying to say because there wasn't a full explanation of it. Uh, so I might be misinterpreting what Chris was saying. And if so, I do apologize. However, I got to address this in that the way we use the term quantum communication does not mean instantaneous communication, mm-hmm. which seemed to be what Chris was saying, but I'm not entirely certain. And, and this is partially just a terminology thing. But but yeah, so, so what does quantum communication mean? All right. Now, generally, that refers to using the principles of quantum physics, uh, which we recently talked about in our random number generator episode. Uh, where the using quantum physics to create like truly random numbers, what at least they appear to be truly random again, based upon all of our observations, right? Mm-hmm. As, as far as we can tell, it's truly random and it's to use those to create keys for cryptographic purposes. So you can be assured that any messages you send to someone using this methodology are completely secure across the channel as long as that session is active. But it doesn't speed up that transmission. The transmission itself still takes place over more classical communication media. So you're limited by the speed of light, ultimately. You can't go faster than that. With, it's pretty fast. It's But fast. over long distances, it's not really fast enough. And it's not instantaneous. Yeah. We, we can't. We can't use quantum communication for really long distances. We're limited by the actual limitations of quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case the truly optimistic believe that maybe we're talking 500 kilometers range max. Uh, in real life, we're talking closer to 150, 200 kilometers or so uh, being worked on now. And I would point out that that, although longer than a car, is still <laughs> shorter than the distance to other solar systems. Yeah, significantly not 
interstellar <laughs> range here. Um, you know, one idea that this might be related to, though, is the one of quantum entanglement. And that might be what Chris was referring to. And again, if I'm wrong, I do apologize. But there has been discussion of quantum entanglement, which is a truly odd thing to, th- you know, concept to us spooky, on the classical. Spooky, even, you yes. might say. It's spooky action at a distance, as I'm certain Albert Einstein would have would have said and did say. In fact, he didn't. Not would have. He did. Uh, so <laughs> the the concept here is is a little mind bending. Yeah. All right. So you've got though these, I think also sometimes misunderstood. It, it, it can very easily be misunderstood. Well, so it's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so on the quantum level, you can get these uh, quantum particles, subatomic particles, that are entangled with one another. So their states correlate with one another. They don't. Right. They don't necessarily match. But if you know something about one, you automatically know something about the other. One. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you know there are a lot of different quantum states we could talk about, like the polarization of light or the spin of an electron. Let's go with spin. So let's say that you could describe spin as being either up or down. That's just two directions that we could talk about. Uh, but we'll we'll limit it for this purpose. And uh, if you have two entangled electrons. One is spinning and you measure one and it's spinning up. You know that the other one, because it's entangled, is spinning down. It's the opposite direction. You Mm -hmm. know that because of uh, the the fact that they are entangled. Now, uh, here's where it gets kind of kind of crazy. These two particles will remain entangled no matter how far apart they are. So you could take those two entangled particles, take one to one side of the galaxy, the other to the other side of the galaxy. They're separated by the entire Milky Way. And if you measure one, you know what the other one's state was at the moment that you measured yours. Yours, right. Because they were entangled. So some people have suggested that this is faster than light communication. But – if you really stretch your mind, you realize that locality has not necessarily been violated because you're you're really only you already knew that the two were entangled. Right. Mm-hmm. You already knew that. And by measuring it, all you've done is determine what state they were in at that moment. And if uh, you wanted to try and do an experiment where you communicated some some way using this, it all falls apart. So. Let's talk about an example because otherwise this is going to get super, super complicated. And then I'll talk about some of the arguments about (laughs) quantum entanglement because it's not a settled issue at all. Uh, I want to use this example, though. All right. So I give Lauren an electron. Don't say I never gave you anything. Oh, thank you, Jonathan. I, I give Joe an electron that's entangled with Lauren's electron. We're buddies. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Always putting burdens on me. <laughs> I I ship you guys to opposite ends of the, the galaxy. Wait a minute. Well, Thank you, know. you, sir. And at this point, I am no longer in, involved in the in the communication of the two of them. However, so <laughs> so Lauren decides she's going to measure her electron, see which way it's spinning. Uh-huh. She sees that it's spinning up. She knows that Joe's electron, therefore, is spinning down. Now – Joe, if you were to measure yours and you saw it was spinning down, you would know that Lawrence was spinning up. But you haven't communicated anything yet. Uh, yeah. And what we really want to say to each other at this point is like, man, Jonathan sucks. Right. Yeah. So let's say that Lauren sends the message, man, Jonathan sucks, along with, oh, by the way, your electron is spinning down. 
It would have to go across classical communications channels, thus traveling at, at best, the speed of light across the galaxy. So even though you could measure the electron and know what state Joe's electron was in, the actual message about that information would still be limited by the speed uh. of light. If you wanted to uh, change the spin of your electron, as if you could, like... Hey, Joe, whenever your electron is spinning down, it means this. And whenever it's spinning up, it means this. I'll control my electron from over here. You just watch yours. Everything will be fine. If you try to change the state of your electron, Lauren, entanglement breaks. Right. So Joe could still be observing the electron and it could still – the spin could be changing, but it would no longer be connected to the state of Lauren's electron. It would just be random. Right. So, it's no longer in superposition. It has been uh, affected by a macro scale system. And now Joe would be thinking that Lauren's talking crazy talk because it would just be random messages based upon whatever code you guys had worked out previously. And so, so there is no way to send the message, man, Jonathan sucks. Through Not through quantum entanglement as far as we understand right mm-hmm. now. However, that being said, this is far from a settled matter in quantum physics. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So first we've got... So you're admitting everything you just said is wrong. I'm admitting that everything I said could be wrong. Yeah. Man, John, I am sucks. allowing for the... <laughs> Sorry. No. First of all, I am sa- saying Come that Jonathan on, no. Sucks is we, wrong. We accept the burden of proper scientific humility yes, on this we do, show. We right. do, we do, yes. So, so it could be wrong. So first of all, uh, this was an idea that Einstein hated. He did not like the idea of uh, uh, particles being t- able to uh, be entangled with one another and that this could potentially lead to something like faster-than-light communication. He yeah. called it spooky action from a distance. Of course, nature doesn't owe us liking it. That's true. That's true. And there have been people who pointed out that there are loopholes within quantum mechanics that could potentially allow for a more classical explanation of the behaviors of those subatomic particles that does not involve entanglement. In other words, we have the illusion of entanglement, but in reality, something else is happening. So, for example, there uh, there's a story about how you could use an instrument to measure uh, the various uh, states of quantum particles and thus see the entanglement. But there been there's been a point uh, people have pointed out that perhaps the the instrument of measurement itself has communicated the state of one to the other using classical means. So it's the speed of light is your limiting factor. So in other words, we're talking about non-sentient things essentially communicating with one another. That's what happens at the quantum level, guys. So in other words, the whole thing ends up being what some folks would call a conspiracy. That one subatomic particle. conspiracy of quantums? Yeah. So that one subatomic particle, once you've determined what spin it is, the other one is told, quote unquote, that through the uh, instrumentation and ends up spinning the other way. Now, <laughs> there's also the talk about how perhaps there could be some set of events that creates this illusion of the two particles being entangled with one another. And that, in fact, you could almost think of it in a, in terms of fate, that the, the, <laughs> the steps you take to make those measurements, in fact, determine the effect you get and so you see the effect of entanglement, but the effect really isn't there. You have created it yourself. And this is kind of a concept called setting independence. Like how mm. do you determine that your actions did mm-hmm. not lead to this? So there's a proposed um, 
experiment I read about, uh, this was, uh, in an article that I read back in November of 2014. That's kind of crazy. And here's the, here's the proposed test. You've got a particle detector and it has different settings that you can use to measure subatomic particles, mm-hmm. right? And if you were to choose which setting you wanted, like, quote unquote, consciously choose. You would choose liquefy. You could be setting into motion the series of events that determine that both of these particles appear to be entangled. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you are the cause. It's not truly entangled. You have caused this to happen. Right. So they wanted to to say, let's take all of this chance out of it. What we're going to do is we're going to look for the oldest light we can detect in the universe. So in other words, the furthest light source we can possibly find uh, as soon as it hits Earth for the first time. So Maybe the CMBR. <laughs> I don't know if they're looking at cosmic background radiation or not. Uh, but what they are doing is they're looking for uh, bright lights that are as furthest, a- the furthest away from us as possible. In other words, we've just detected the light for the okay. first time. We've never detected it before. Sure. And they're looking for a couple different sources. And uh, preferably those sources have to be far enough from each other so that their light could never have touched one another before that moment. <laughs> so that means this light could not have interacted with anything before that specific moment. And then taking basically the millisecond of when it hits as uh, like if it's an even number, then it's a zero. If it's not a number, it's a one or something along those lines. You then determine what setting you use your particle detector. <laughs> and the argument is that if, in fact, this means that events have come together to cause the illusion of entanglement to happen, they must date all the way back to the Big Bang. So either <laughs> either the particles are truly entangled or everything has been predestined from the Big Bang. Or they're not truly entangled, you know, by that big turtle, possibly. (laughs) Uh, So that's kind of crazy. But, um, you know, all right. At any rate, even that's (laughs) one of the weirdest things we've ever talked about, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty weird. So there are also some physicists who are looking into the possibility of maybe there is some way of working around this quantum entanglement for communication purposes. But from what I understand, the prevailing thought in in the discipline is that it is not likely to be possible. That, yeah, yeah, that it's it's really just an interesting phenomenon and uh, is perhaps not practical in yeah. any way. Yeah. It, it, yeah, well, also, I mean, you have to take relativistic physics into account where uh, d- didn't Einstein and or some other physicists uh, experiment sort of in their thoughts with the idea of the tachyon telephone? The tachyons are the particles right. that travel faster than light, and if you could... Send a signal to someone through tachyons. Apparently, it would arrive before it was sent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, tachyons, of course, are hypothetical. Right. We, we don't have no evidence they actually right. exist. It, it's it's convenient for math right now. Sure. So another challenge besides the communication one. I mean, obviously that one's huge, right? Because uh, if we are to send robots out into the galaxy to explore, then if we are limited by the speed of light. For communication purposes, we're never going to get that real-time experience. Well, I want to propose a solution that I think we may have talked about a long time ago when we were talking about space exploration uh, earlier on in the existence or the history of this podcast. 
uh, which is sort of robotic avatars enabled by teams of astronauts who don't exactly go straight into the the monster's mouth. So say so you've got to explore the surface of some moon or, or mm-hmm. asteroid or something like that. And you want to do it with a robotic avatar, something that has the judgment and... Uh, and foresight and control of a human while having all those wonderful advantages that robots provide, you could, for example, have a spacecraft orbiting this object. Right. And then from that spacecraft, you could have a human who dons, you know, uh, control gloves or an exoskeleton of some kind and a VR headset and then becomes that robotic probe and, that's and, down on the surface and is close enough to communicate without too much latency. And Chris actually brought that uh, to light as well, saying that that could be uh, a possibility for something like uh, exploring Mars or even setting up a colony for Mars in the future mm-hmm. where, yeah. you know, we talked about uh, the Mars One proposed plan, which we need to do an update on, I think, at some point just to talk about uh, some of the information that's come to light since the the plan started. Mm-hmm. Some wonderfully sketchy information. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot to talk about. I think maybe we do need to revisit that at some point. But yeah. at any rate, uh, there there's talk of there was talk of using robots to build the habitats that the Martian colonists would be living in. Yeah, not uh, a bad idea. Yeah, and and this this approach would make a lot of sense too. Being able to have that real time control or close to real time control of robots by using uh, an orbiting space station of some sort or even just a spacecraft uh, with people on it that would then be directly controlling the robots on the surface, uh, the delay would be much shorter. Uh, yeah, it's a lot safer to that way. You don't have human construction workers down there breathing in all of those delicious perchlorates. That would, that would be good. The Martian soil. Yeah, that's not not great for your lungs. Breathing all that in. So Didn't we talk about licking Mars dust earlier. Yeah. Yes, we mm. did. Yeah, that was one of the first things you said, Joe. <laughs> this nom, episode. Nom, nom. So yeah, I think the communication challenge is probably the biggest one that we have, especially once you start about talking about going beyond our solar system. I don't know that we're going to solve that without some other breakthrough discovery that allows for some faster than light communication. Uh, but there are some other challenges, too. We need to make sure that whatever robots we create are safe for whatever their purpose is. So for the example of robots here on Earth, if we want to have a robot like the one that was reported to reported by in, a, in IO9, we need to make sure that it's going to be safe to be around you know, as with other humans, right? You don't want a robot that would be capable of harming someone through, uh, uh, and, you know, whatever action it may take. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like if you ever go to a manufacturing plant with one of those giant industrial robots, they have these enormous areas set up around them to mm-hmm. prevent people from getting too close. Yeah. Cause it's deadly. And bumpers and stuff like that. Yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, w- which is less of a problem if you're right on Mars because sure. no one else is walking yeah. around down there. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. what are you going to do? Shove over a Martian? I mean, Joe's robot I hope that. not. That Martian, we're going to start a <laughs> world war. Yeah. Q38 space modulator or whatever it was. <laughs> In reality, I would only make peace-loving robots. You're the one who had all the shoving ones. I'm just saying. Those weren't mine. Okay. It was just hypothetical <laughs> robots. Hypothetical robots that would probably belong to Jonathan. <laughs> All right. Let's be fair. All right. So anyway, um, you know, you all obviously would need to build a robot that was going to be uh, 
you know, well-designed for whatever environment it was going to go into. This kind of goes back to, you know, having a robot with wheels as opposed to legs because it's more stable. Uh-huh, or tracks even, yeah. Yeah, or uh, and it may not have the same number of uh, limbs that we have. So it may be that it has a single articulated arm or it could have a whole bunch of articulated arms. The user interface would have to be designed to allow for that, right? Mm-hmm. Depending upon how much autonomy you gave the robot versus ro- uh, remote control. If you want true the, the true sense of being present in that robot, then you want as much of that control as possible. Right. Otherwise, it feels like you're just a passive uh, audience member um, watching a movie or something as opposed mm-hmm. to the person who's actually making things happen. Yeah. Um, and we'd have to make an interface that makes sense based upon what the robot is capable of. If the robot is able to gather a lot more information than our human senses can detect, we have to have that information presented in a way that makes sense to us, the human operator. Right. Because we can't see in every spectrum or we can't hear certain noises. Do we have that converted into what we can hear? How do we indicate that it would be normally beyond our range of sensing? These are little questions that we have to answer in order for this to make sense. And then, of course, we just have to train people how to use these robots whenever we do develop them. And Mm -hmm. that's probably the easiest because humans are pretty pretty plastic with the brains, right? We, uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just, just looking at the different number of video games that any given human can play, I, I'd say that we're pretty capable of moving through an environment with a avatar that does not move exactly how yeah, we do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a good example. Although it does mean that uh, whenever you switch from one type of robot to another, you got to have that, you know, five to ten minutes of, oh, that's right, B in this one means that I end up shocking a person as opposed to handing them the cup of hot cocoa I made them. That would be important yeah, to know. Yeah, and the left shoulder trigger in this one isn't uh, poke the button, it's fire a rocket launcher. Right. That's good to remember. Yeah, good yeah. to remember. Uh, I hope whenever they design robotic avatars, they don't have any controls that rely on joystick clicks. I mean, <laughs> right. how just do you, the worst. How do you sprint? <laughs> Click the left thumbstick. Oh. oh. Well, that that wraps up this discussion. I want to thank Chris for that amazing yeah, email. Yeah. Uh, it was really a phenomenal, a phenomenal message, and I wish we could have read the whole thing, but that would <laughs> we would have had to have a second episode. Uh, but I do welcome all those kinds of, of messages to come on in because it's fantastic to hear from you. We love knowing what you guys want to hear more about, and uh, we welcome that kind of message. So you can send us an email. That email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. At Twitter and Google+, we are FWThinking. Over on Facebook, just search FWThinking in the search bar. We'll pop right up, leave us a message, and we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, 
or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.